You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. there. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, how the inauguration of U.S. President-elect Joe Biden is shaping up and what the new administration means for Canada. But first, Tina Cortez with the impact of the emergency shift to online learning on our students. Earlier this week, the province not only issued a stay-at-home order, but the government also announced that online learning would continue until at least next month in Windsor-Essex, Peel Region, Toronto, Hamilton, and right here in York Region. But what is the impact of extending the time spent in the virtual classroom on our students? To discuss this and more is Sarah Barrett, professor in the Faculty of Education at York University. Thank you for your time, Professor. No problem. Glad to be here. So in mid-2020, take us back to the survey you conducted among teachers. What did your findings show? Well, the first thing that I found was that it was such a sudden change that the majority of teachers didn't really have a chance to prepare to pivot from face-to-face to doing it online, and that 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 was a major source of difficulty for both the students and the teachers because they, of course, at that point in the year had reached a sort of groove, especially in the elementary. Relationships had been established. The students had gotten used to the routines, and then suddenly there was this change, and the relationships that were sort of disrupted became the sort of biggest issue for the teachers that I surveyed and spoke to. And so what happened after that? So they finished the school year online in 2020. In September, things changed again. What have you heard from teachers in this new school year? What I've heard is that on the one hand, at least for those who came into September knowing they were teaching online, that it was a little easier for them because they were able to plan their courses according to that format. They learned a lot in the term before. The students that were in the class were there because they wanted to be there online. And so it was easier. Um, it wasn't ideal, but it was easier. But then those students that were face-to-face were very happy to be back face-to-face. The teachers were glad to have the students right in front of them. Um, it was easier. It, there was still, of course, the social distancing, but it was just great from what they said, to just finally be back with their students again. And what is the experience like, especially for vulnerable students? Right, and for the vulnerable students, of course, this was the biggest worry last term. Um, Besides the fact that the students, uh, of course, miss their teachers, the teachers miss their students, the more vulnerable students were also really impacted academically in a way that was very hard for the teachers to manage because they couldn't really tell what was happening on the other side of the screen. So whereas in their own classroom, they could adjust the way that their classroom was set up in order to accommodate students who had special needs or students who were in risk in other ways, um, this wasn't possible once they were online because they couldn't see what those students were dealing with necessarily. Um, Some students had parents who were essential workers, and so they were very worried about their parents. Um, Some very young students were, you know, afraid just because of what they were hearing in the news that something might horrible might happen to their parents, like uh, if there was a nurse, for example, or if they were a truck driver. 
um, for the parents, uh, it was also extremely difficult for them because they suddenly had to navigate, you know, all the financial difficulties and often teachers would intervene and help them to find the social services that they needed. But that was, again, harder when it was online. They couldn't necessarily get in touch with the parents. So the vulnerable students in all cases are always more vulnerable because it was that much harder for the school system to do what it usually does, which is level the playing field as much as possible. Do you think the school boards learned anything from the experience last year and were able to better prepare for this school year? I think in a lot of ways, yes. As I mentioned, a lot of uh, students did choose to go online completely uh, in elementary. The family just made that decision. So in the fall, they were ready for it. They had the devices they needed, the boards. They had worked out the platforms that were going to be used. And so they have learned from before that there were things they had to have in place, which they made sure they had in place for online. The problem, of course, this time around, is that they weren't expecting everybody to be back online again. So these face-to-face students, the students that were not online in the fall, um, they were not prepared to be going back online. So again, there was a scramble. So the beginning of January, there was a scramble, all the boards trying to get devices to all of the students, trying to make sure all the students had internet, very much the same as it was in March. And can I ask you, do you think the impact or the effectiveness of online learning Is it different if it's by choice or if it's mandated? I think so. And I think it's more a matter of logistics Um, and, of course, learning styles, if if you want to use that term. Um, The fact is that people don't choose to do online learning if they don't have devices, if they don't have good Internet. Um, Certainly, if they're quite a bit younger, like, say, kindergarten, where it's play-based learning, online is not generally the way to go. Uh, it's also the case that if you're in a house where you have lots of children um, and they're sharing devices, again, that's not ideal. So choice becomes important simply because of the logistics of going online. I wouldn't say that online is necessarily worse. It's just that if you don't have the structures and infrastructure, the devices, and it's not your cup of tea, then it's not the way to go. If the teachers have Um, the resources that they need in order to work with the students, then, yes, online can be positive. And, in fact, several teachers did say, you know, the students are learning a lot about how to manage on their own, how to be, how to motivate themselves, Um, never mind all of the um, skills that they learned about how to get online and how to learn all the different platforms. So there are, of course, positives. It's just a matter of we need to make sure that the infrastructure is there for them. And we need to make sure that, the students that are online are well-supported and that the vulnerable students especially have what they need to be able to participate fully. You mentioned the students and the teachers being well-supported. Do you have an opinion on how do we support parents who are also working from home at this time? Yes, and that's, that's an interesting thing as well because, of course, the online te- teachers who were teaching online in the fall, they're, they're kids weren't home with them. (laughs) So um, now in January, the kids are home with them. So they're trying to juggle. And so just based on what I've heard from, because I did do a follow-up with them at the end of, uh, in December um, to see how they were doing. And um, some of them responded to me in January and mentioned, yeah, now, now I have my kids at home. So now I'm juggling synchronous classes online that I'm teaching. Plus, I have my own child at home and working with them. And, 
And, of course, you can expand that into the experience of any parent who is working from home. It's this added complication, um, trying to make sure that you're there for the students uh, to, to help them to do their work and also do your own job. So what's your advice for parents, teachers, students to achieve that successful outcome to this school year? Right, and that's a wonderful question, and I would be a very wealthy woman if I could give you a definitive answer. (laughs) But I think in the end, each family has to make their own decision what the system has to do, and really, the school system is systems within systems, right? There are school boards within the larger um, provincial system. They have to make sure that everybody has the basics, that the teachers have the time to do their planning, that the students have the devices and the sort of internet to be able to access the online environment, that there's some flexibility so that if there are some students who really do need to be in person, for example, I know one jurisdiction is actually having students still come into the school because their, their needs are such that it's just impossible for them to learn otherwise. As long as there's flexibility in these ways, then I think that it allows families to make decisions more easily. So we have to create the conditions for them to get through this. And that includes, of course, a lot of other things um, that have to do with supports for families and mental health support. But I think if we do those things, then every family will be able to make sure that their kids do well. Professor Sarah Barrett from York University's Faculty of Education, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. So the pandemic has also taken quite a toll on mental health. Karen Johnson now with a new tool to help. Blue Monday, often recognized as the most depressing day of the year, falls on January 18th. Mental health issues like anxiety and depression are at an all-time high as we continue to live and work our way through a global pandemic. To help people manage their mental health, a new therapy program is now available. Joining us on the feed is Linda Naranjit, a therapist and clinical director at Ability CBT. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Karen. How would you describe the mental toll the pandemic is having on so many individuals? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, You know, when we think about the mental health of Canadians, we definitely are seeing uh, a significant decline, and we're seeing a lot more of anxiety and depression come up for sure. Uh, Mortar Chappelle has a mental health index, and for the past nine consecutive months, we have definitely seen uh, significantly lower mental health areas. Um, so I think, you know, when we think about how to best support individuals, um, you know, that's why Ability CBT really comes, comes into focus in terms of being able to support individuals because we are recognizing that there is a lot of individuals out there um, who are challenged with uh, the concept of, you know, these lockdowns where there's a lot of loneliness, there's a lot of isolation that's coming through, and then just sort of the overall uncertainty that we're seeing, uh, which is producing a lot of anxieties for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. What is cognitive behavioral therapy? How does that work? Yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a structured approach, and really it's about building awareness and recognition by exploring the relationship that you have with regards to your thoughts, 
your feelings and then behaviors. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the belief is that thoughts can really change how we feel and then ultimately it is expressed in our behaviors. So what this program really does attempt to do in cognitive behavioral therapy is to provide strategies to understand how to work with some of that negative thinking that you might have and really promote um, healthy behaviors and thoughts and feelings um, as, you, as you progress and deal with challenging situations and experiences. Right. Tell us how uh, Ability CBT, how does it work? Yeah, so Ability CBT is a therapist-guided, internet-based uh, cognitive behavioral therapy program, and it really, um, you know, focuses, like I mentioned before, on using these CBT aspects where you, you look at those thoughts and feelings and behaviors, and it builds that self-awareness so individuals are really able to, um, you know, make some effective change with regards to how they're feeling, thinking, and behaving, but just more intimately with regards to the program. What it is is individuals will access the platform or the service through a website, mm-hmm. and what they do from there is complete a mental health questionnaire. And from there, there's a consultation with a therapist who will then assess their needs and the client will be able to then navigate through the program by being able to access modules which contain educational articles, exercises, videos, and some activities that they can navigate. Ideally, we'd like to say that, you know, clients do it at a weekly pace so that they're able to integrate some of the things that they learn into their lifestyle. Um, However, we do understand that, you know, life happens, so Mm -hmm. people do need to take things at their own pace at times, um, which makes a lot of sense. And then we also have our therapist on the back end who helps us to support and guide the individual. Um, And there's check-ins that occur, and that can occur by video, messaging, uh, or telephonically. It really is determined between the therapist and the client. Is the program free, Linda? The program is available and it's, uh, to individuals who are in Manitoba and in Ontario, and it is government funded, so, mm-hmm. so there's no charge there. Um, in, in other areas, you know, where there may not be that funding, it is available to Shockburs Drug Mart um, patients at a preferred. Uh, pricing or rate, mm-hmm. uh, and then I would encourage individuals to look into maybe any extended health benefits that they might have, or health spending areas or insurance right. providers. Um, generally, these are things that are, are covered, but I, I would encourage individuals to explore that a little bit more. And is it basically the same for adults, seniors, and young people reaching out for this program, or have you sort of diversified it for the the demographics? Yeah, so generally uh, the Ability CBT program is available to individuals 16 and older, and we're offering uh, programs related to the pandemic, so anxiety with pandemic, depression, as well as anxiety-related uh, issues. Mm-hmm. And what we've noticed is individuals, you know, definitely have seen uh, concerns regarding their children, and they're looking to access support, and I often indicate that it's a great way, it's a great gateway in so that they better support their own child in terms of how to get support and access um, and how to support what, you know, what's going on for their children. So, you know, it's not necessarily for um, individuals under the age of 15. However, it is a great way for parents to be able to access and get a good sense of how to support their child. Mm -hmm. Um, Additionally, our therapists are able to provide additional resources um, if there is something more specific that's needed for children. Well, this sounds like a fantastic program. I'd love our listeners to, to get more information about it. Where can they go for more information? 
Yeah, so we have two ways that you can access the support. You can go through the website, and it's www.shoppersdrugmart.myicbt.com, or just download the PC Health app, and that can be accessed through Google Play for Android users, or you can go to the App Store for iOS users. Great. Well, thank you so much, Linda Naringit, Therapist and Clinical Director of Ability CBT. Thanks for joining us today on The Feed. Thank you so much for having me. Next on The Feed, a look ahead to Wednesday's inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 105.9 The Region. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. For the Democratic Party, the journey back to the White House culminates on Wednesday with the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States. Events over these last four years, and especially the past few weeks, have left many Americans and observers from around the world shocked, stunned, even shaken. We are joined now on the feed by Steve Nardi, Chair of Democrats Abroad Canada, with his perspective from this side of the border. Thanks for being with us, Steve. Hello, Anne. Good to be with you. So, Steve, were you always certain that Joe Biden would emerge the victor in that crazy race called the U.S. presidential election? I was cautiously optimistic all the way through. I was never certain until seeing the numbers. I think a lot of us learned from 2016 to uh, not count on anything. Hmm. Do you think Biden's victory was more about getting rid of Trump? I would uh, say that that part of it is is getting rid of Trump, but you can't overlook the fact that Trump attracted 10 million more votes than he did four years ago. So that would indicate that there's some movement, there is some momentum toward incentives to um, remove Trump, but clearly the, the Democratic Party has some work to do if, 10, more, 10 million more people felt he was the better candidate. What were your thoughts on the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? And, and what did other members of Democrats abroad Canada say about that? A lot of tears um, and a lot of anger. Everybody who knew that uh, this, this group was planning to descend upon the Capitol on January 6th, people around the world knew that this group was headed there, and, and we'd seen in uh, on in the state level previously attempts to uh, attack state capitals. Um, so we knew that there was a tendency to violence, and to see the lack of preparedness, um, and and how easy it was to see um, the symbol of the capital being breached. Um, and, and every elected leader of that branch of government being in that building was horrifying, just absolutely horrifying. You know, there was a collective sigh of relief here in Canada. A lot of people saying, wow, I'm glad that we aren't living in the United States. I'm glad that this isn't happening in our country. What are your thoughts about that kind of reaction from Canadians? Oh, we need to be very careful and pay close attention. Uh, as we saw on um, the, that day, there were uh, protests 
um, car car protests past the U.S. consulate in Toronto, um, and and there were protests uh, in other countries as well um, of people who were buying into the lies and the falsehoods of uh, the election being rigged, and um, you know Canadian media. Uh, as a role in this, um, from my perspective, I watched back in October when Trump did his Evita moment from the South Portico, and three Canadian networks aired the whole content from beginning to end with no fact-checking, but yet you, even Fox didn't show it in full um, once he started um, going into the falsehoods. So uh, if that message keeps coming in unfiltered, it's going to get to some people, and that is concerning. Let's move to the positive side of this discussion, and that is the inauguration, which is just days away now. And so many firsts. Uh, Joe Biden, the oldest president uh, ever to uh, to serve, 78 plus 61 days of age. And Kamala Harris, the first woman, first African-American, first Asian-American vice president. What do you think they will bring to the next four years in the White House? Um, I, are, from my perspective, I view their administration as being grounded in, in values of inclusion, um, opportunity for all, um, that they will be working for the American people. Joe's experience from being in the Senate and his experience working specifically with Mitch McConnell gives me hope that they can begin dialogue again. He also is the 15th former vice president to serve as president. So how important is that and, and what he learned as vice president that he'll bring to the role of president? I think if for, he, for Joe's um, experience is that if it was ever needed where a vice president was being elevated to the presidency, this is the time where that experience has become the most critical component. Um, we've, we've read many stories where the administration has not exactly been cooperative. Um, they delayed in acknowledging his uh, designation as president-elect. So they're really behind um, on getting the, down to some of the details that they need to help make a smooth transition. And I think you know, following 9-11, that was uh, the delay in Bush um, getting access to information was deemed as one factor. You know, that played a role in, in maybe not being prepared as they could have been. Um, and, and that would be a concern at this time around. What gives me comfort is that Joe does bring that experience. He has been at that table. Um, it's not a, a learning game from day one for him. So the idea of an orderly transition, it, it, we're just days away from the inauguration. Is that now even possible? And, and is it even necessary at this point? Oh, I'm absolutely. Um, I feel it's one person who is not uh, in favor of order, an orderly transition, but I think I feel many of his supporters um, have have come out very vocally now, saying that that is what will occur on January twentieth, um, it, it, and it is it is necessary. Um, I think the world needs to see the orderly transition of power as they have for well over two hundred years. Um, 
coming out of America. So the actual day itself, some of it will be uh, similar to what we've seen in in the past, but with very few people and a lot of heavy security. But there will be some other parts of this day that will not look the same because of what happened recently with storming the Capitol, but also the pandemic. What do you envision the day will look like, Steve? I think they're going to try to make it as inclusive um, uh, obviously, you know, with the security issues and combined with the pandemic, you just can't have a, a mass gathering. And, and I think most people recognize that. But the inauguration committee has been working diligently on creating as an, as an, an inclusive event. Um, I think we'll see maybe some things like we saw from the Democratic Convention where we had images of pure, true representation of Americans from across the country, from across all spectrums of life. Um, I, I, I'm expecting to, to see the American people showcase um, as they begin this journey. Do you think Joe Biden has the capability of bringing America together? I believe he is the person, the best person who can give it a shot. It's time for the end of cruelty and chaos. And, and Joe is a man of compassion um, for all of the American people, and he wants to rebuild the economy and put Americans back to work. And uh, I can just hope that people will give him a chance. We've had a lot of discourse, a lot of discourse pretty much over the last 10 years. And I'm hopeful that the, the people that are in power see that how little has been achieved and how much destruction has been accomplished, and that this is the time to make, do, do better for the American people. Steve, what is Democrats Abroad Canada? What is your mandate? Our mandate is to uh, reach out to Americans living abroad, not just Democrats, but all Americans living abroad, to educate them on their right to vote in U.S. elections, to assist them in requesting their ballot and completing their ballot. Um, but we also um, represent uh, the voices of concerns of Americans living abroad as we uh, door knock on uh, on Capitol Hill um, every year, we are, are meeting with congressional uh, leaders and staffers uh, to talk about the issues of, of sometimes unintended consequences of bills that have passed um, that they, they have not realized the impact on Americans who live abroad. So those are our two primary objectives as an organization. Um, and, and in this last election cycle, uh, we had hundreds of volunteers who put in thousands of hours, even in a, a period of a pandemic. Um, from our volunteers from Canada made over 100,000 phone calls to Americans globally uh, to help uh, get them registered and to request their ballot. I'm fully confident um, that when the numbers come in that Democrats Abroad Canada will will have doubled the turnout of Americans voting from the numbers in 2016. And so you've got a Democrat back in the White House. That must make uh, your organization pretty happy. It makes us very happy, but it also risks um, complacency. Um, and we cannot take our eye off the ball. Yes, we have the White House. Yes, we have the House of Representatives. But, you know, we have control of the Senate. Um, that we can't count on that remaining. We've got a lot of work to do over the next two years um, as, as the administration puts through their policies, but we have to keep our eye on the ball and continue to reach Americans to 
have them request their ballot, uh, register to vote at votesforabroad.org, um, and to, to hear from them on the issues that they, they want uh, voice given to on Capitol Hill. A very busy four years ahead. Thank you, Steve Nardi, Chair of Democrats Abroad Canada, for joining us now on the feed. Okay, over now to Afwa Ba with the Trump legacy. Afwa? Thanks, Anne. Well, after four years, the Trump administration is coming to an end, and it has been a tumultuous four years. So joining me today with a look at what has happened in the past and also with a look at what's to come, I'm now speaking with Associate Professor from the Department of Politics at the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University, Professor Stephen Newman. Professor Newman, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, happy to be here. Okay, let's get right into this discussion then. Uh, It's been... Quite an eventful past four years. Your general take on the climate of America from 2016 right through to 2020. Feverish. Trump's America, in my eyes, displayed a sickness of the soul. If Abraham Lincoln called upon his fellow Americans to answer to the better angels of their nature, Trump encouraged everyone to heed their inner demons. He fostered an environment in which it was safe to hate the racial and religious other, white supremacy and Christian nationalism, escaped the fringes of American society, to which they had been consigned in the last century, and re-entered the mainstream. Politics became tribal, reflecting a degree of polarization not seen in the U.S. since perhaps the Civil War. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's uh, now continue to break this down. Now that we've looked, I mean, through this past four years, how well then will history record this specific time period in America? Well, I'm inclined to think that historians will treat Trump's presidency as a, as a time of crisis for the American Republic. I mean, in my view, Trump is an instinctive authoritarian. Right? He's, he's not someone who has an ideology. He's not Hitler. He's not even Mussolini. But he does instinctively lean toward authoritarianism. And he also flouted the informal rules and the political norms that have long guided and constrained the conduct of presidents and elected officials. He openly defied the rule of law and deliberately subverted the institutions of American democracy, no more so than when he sought to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election by falsely alleging fraud and mobilizing his party and his electoral base to question the legitimacy of Joe Biden's win. The enduring symbol of the Trump presidency will be the attack on the Capitol by a mob of MAGA Trump supporters incited by the president himself. I want to ask a little bit of a question that might deviate a little bit. Do you think the Republican Party can recover from this uh, these past four years? That's a really good question. And I've been reading a number of pieces in newspapers and, and, and magazines and journals debating it. It's possible that the Republican Party can recover. It's possible that this event, the events of, of, of January 6th, will be the straw that, that breaks the camel's back. As, as um, a columnist wrote in the New York Times, the fever has broken. What he, what he meant is that this at last exposes the foolishness, the dangerousness of Trumpism, and it will bring Republicans back to their senses. But I'm not entirely convinced of that. If you look at the evening of January 6th, after the 
Congress made its way back into the Capitol and resumed counting the electoral votes. There were motions on the floor objecting to the vote in Georgia and in Pennsylvania. And what? Something like 140-some Republicans in the House voted in favor of those objections. And while not all of the 12 or 13 senators who had said before the session that they were going to back these objections, I think only six or seven of them did in the end, but still, if after the Capitol has been ransacked by a mob, and a mob incited by Trump himself, if these people could still vote for these objections, basically saying, yes, we believe with President Trump that the election was stolen, what hope is there for the Republican Party? Mm, Very interesting points there to ponder, of course, for the next years to come. Wanting to ask, since we have been alluding to what happened uh, earlier this month at the U.S. Capitol, if you could explain why the ceremony with the U.S. Vice President recording the state results was so significant. Well, this is something that happens in each presidential election year. I mean, basically, it is the ritual or the ceremony, the acceptance of the Electoral College ballots by a joint session of Congress. Um, this is this is normal, and it's always important because ritual matters. I mean, you can think of it as a kind of show, in, in the same sense that the inauguration of the new president on the 20th of January is a kind of show. But these things always matter because they symbolize the completion of the electoral process and also the transfer of power from one administration to the next. This year's Electoral College ceremony was especially important because of Trump's concerted attempt to delegitimize his opponent's victory and and really to overturn the result. I mean, I cannot emphasize heavily enough how radical this is. I mean, no president in the history of the United States has ever refused to concede an electoral loss and actively attempted to overturn that loss. Right. This this was an attack on democracy itself. And in an America that's already um, at an all-time high of polarity. And with that in mind, then, what must the Biden administration do to unite an already polarized America? Well, that's a, the $64 million question, isn't it? Is it even possible to unite America given the degree of polarization? I mean, Biden will enter office on the 20th with millions of Trump supporters believing that he is not the legitimate president of the United States. And he might very well have to deal with a Republican Party in Congress that either shares this belief or finds it in its interest to speak and act as though it did. I mean, I expect Biden to focus on the tasks at hand, defeating the pandemic, restoring the economy, And I expect him to pursue the policy objectives that he ran on, like fixing the country's aging infrastructure and addressing the the climate crisis. To the extent that he can find bipartisan support in the Congress for some or all of these measures, he might be able to begin to bring the country back together. Success in defeating COVID-19 and in rebuilding the economy, I think that would help as well. But if right-wing social media keeps fanning the flames of division, right, and if the, if the Republican Party plays an obstructionist role, as it did when Obama was elected, I think it's going to be really difficult to unify the country. 
I mean, I don't think it's something that Joe Biden or any other president could accomplish in the space of four years. One could argue then that for the Biden administration, the next four years in tandem with uh, trying to battle this pandemic and restart the economy would also be to find a way to heal the American land in terms of uniting the American people once again. I'm going to backtrack a little bit now and go back to President Donald Trump. He is still president for the next couple of days. But is it possible that Trump could run again in 2024, either as a Republican or by forming another party? I mean, partly it will depend on what happens in the next few days or the next few weeks or the next few months. There is a provision, little noticed, in the 14th Amendment that allows Congress to prevent someone who has incited rebellion against the country to run for or hold elective office. That that part of the 14th Amendment was actually targeting former Confederates because the 14th Amendment is one of the post-Civil War amendments. And some scholars uh, are talking about, well, maybe we could use this to prevent Trump from ever running again. But assuming that he's, that he's impeached and not convicted, and they don't use the 14th Amendment to prevent him from ever running for office, then I, su- I suppose Trump could run again in 2024. The man is so erratic that it is difficult to hazard a guess. You don't know. I mean, again, he's got these 70, almost 75 million people voted for him. And a good chunk of those people believe that he won the election, and they might stay loyal to him even after the events of January 6th. Now, of course, once he's out of office, Trump becomes vulnerable on a legal front. He could be indicted in New York State. He's under investigation by the the attorney general there. He could be indicted in Georgia for election tampering. If he were convicted of a crime, his political career would certainly be over. But... We just don't know. It is definitely going to be something that everyone will be watching in the days, months, and years to come. And finally, I want to ask you, as an American here in Canada, what are your final thoughts and or lessons learned over the past four years and your hope for the next four years for the Biden administration? Okay, well, let me, let me focus first on the hopes. I dearly hope that the Trump presidency turns out to be an aberration. I mean, I find the Republican Party's flirtation with authoritarianism, white supremacy, and, and Christian nationalism to be deeply disturbing. And, and I find it even more troubling that, you know, almost 75 million Americans voted for Donald Trump and the Republican Party knowing that they represented these things. And very possibly because that is what the man and his party stood for. I mean, I hope that the Biden presidency will again call on Americans to, to, to heed Lincoln's call and to answer to the, the better angels of their nature. I hope that the nation will again rally to its democratic ideals and that the overwhelming majority of Americans are going to embrace tolerance and inclusivity and, and respect for others. I mean, I hope that, that President Biden succeeds at repairing the damage that, that Trump did to American America's democratic institutions, and, and, and also in his efforts to address the range of challenges that, that the U.S. faces, both at home and abroad. In terms of lessons, I think the primary lesson of the Trump years is how fragile democracy is. I mean, the United States, I think, is the, the, like the oldest democracy, not the first, of course, that was in ancient Greece, but it's like the longest-lasting modern democracy. And yet, 
On January 6th, we saw a mob overrun the Capitol. We saw members of the House and the Senate cowering under their desks and being herded out of the chambers. We saw those chambers invaded by a, a mob in fancy dress. It's incredible. Would you, would anyone in the press or, or any citizen of Canada ever expect in their lifetime to see the United States Capitol overrun by a mob? Would they ever have expected to hear a president of the United States encourage the mob to go down to the Capitol and be wild, be strong? And it's unthinkable, but we all watched it on television. It really happened. So the lesson here is American democracy, like all democracies, is fragile. It's not enough to have a good constitution and a good set of laws. Informal rules, norms are really important. Goodwill really matters. This is the lesson we have to learn, that these things cannot be taken for granted, that they have to be defended, and that there are consequences when you play fast and loose with the, the rules and the laws and the norms that protect democratic politics and a democratic government. And with that, we close the chapter on the Trump administration and open another chapter about to begin for the Biden administration. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Newman from the Department of Politics at the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. After the break, marking a sad anniversary. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Just over a year ago, Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 was shot down shortly after takeoff from Tehran Airport. There were no survivors. Tina Cortez with an update on the legal proceedings. January 8th marked the one-year anniversary of the downing of Ukraine Airlines Flight 752. 176 people were killed. 138 of those passengers were destined for Canada. Their families still struggling, still searching for answers. Joining us next on the feed is Rod Windsor. He has more than 40 years of aviation litigation experience. Thank you for your time, Rod. I'm happy to help. Can we start with, um, if you've spoken to the victims' families, and can you tell us or share with us how they're doing? Um, I, I think it's important, you know, when people always address these questions as if uh, all the families are the same. Each individual is different. Their responses are different. They're all obviously suffering greatly. The, how that manifests itself varies from family to family. They are more than a little frustrated. They have three goals. They want to get truth, they want accountability, and they want uh, compensation, and the path to all three has met obstructions so far, but we are making progress. So where do they stand right now on legal action? One needs to break this down into two. Uh, the litigation involves the airline, it includes um, the state of Iran. The claim against the airline is really should be seen as separate uh, from that against Iran. I use the example of two roads in front of the plaintiffs. One road leads to the airline and the other to 
uh, Iran. The road to the airline is a straight and short road. We know it well, and we know what's at the end of the road. The road against Iran is winding. Uh, it has unknown or known obstacles, and the result is not as certain. So how do you navigate these two roads? Insofar as the claim against the airline is concerned, that is fairly straightforward. The only thing that's uh, really causing difficulty in that is the effect of uh, some of the other proceedings that have been started. So we, we know how to do this. Uh, we've done it many times, and we, as I said, we, we know uh, where that road leads. If we can get rid of the distractions and the obstacles from the other proceedings, that will proceed quickly and uh, with some degree of certainty. Insofar as Iran is concerned, it's um, much more complicated. We have to again break this down into two. There is the state-to-state proceeding whereby Canada and other nations affected primarily by this are pursuing um, all three of those goals that I mentioned against the state of Iran. And those uh, start with negotiations. Those really haven't gotten far so far. Uh, And we know from past experience that that route is a long one and that the result is not certain. There are also individual actions against uh, the uh, actions in Canada that have been brought against the state of Iran. Iran enjoys what we call state or sovereign immunity, and that uh, is a serious obstacle in the way of those actions. There are exceptions. It's possible those exceptions may apply, but it's not going to be easy. And I assume then that you're working with the Canadian government as well? We are in contact with uh, various people in the Canadian government. We're trying to coordinate the efforts. We want to make sure that we're not working across purposes and that the result in one does not adversely affect the other. They are committed to all three goals, uh, and I believe they are doing uh, the right things so far. What we need to do is to monitor those and cooperate with the government. Uh, If they don't leave where we hope, uh, then there are some alternatives we can pursue. You've been doing this type of work for many years, many decades. Insofar as the airline is concerned, uh, we can get all three goals with respect to the airline without much difficulty as long as we can uh, deal with these distractions and obstructions from the other proceedings. Insofar as Iran is concerned, yes, uh, I believe it is likely, although not certain, to take many years. The the two closest examples I can think of um, are the Pan Am Libya and uh, the Iran Air United States cases, and those cases took between 8 and 14 years to resolve on the state-to-state route. So that is a long route, and it's not uh, nearly as easy as suing in Canada against an airline. How are the conversations with the families? And I know you said you don't want to lump them all together, but how do you bring them some sort of peace? I'm not sure how much, as litigation lawyers, we can. Uh, We listen, obviously. We try to answer questions as they come up. I think Beyond the loss itself, one of the great problems in these situations for families is the that so much of this is unknown and uncertain, and we can bring some certainty, we can answer the questions. In the course of the litigation and the other proceedings, we expect to uh, get to the bottom of some of the uh, questions that they have as to what this happened, what happened and why this happened. Some of the information will probably not come out 
Uh, so if we look at the Korean Airlines case, which, which we did many years ago, uh, we had a reasonably good idea of what happened fairly early, but the real disclosure didn't come out until there was a, a regime change that collapsed the Soviet Union, and then information evidence was released uh, by the Russian government. So, you know, it, it's, again, it, it depends specifically what you're talking about. Full disclosure may never happen, and that's going to be a continuing source of frustration uh, and upset for the families. But we will get more and more information as time proceeds. So if you could end with a bit of a timeline here, what happens then in the days, weeks, months ahead for the victims' families? The next milestone is with respect to a class action which has been brought by one individual. That class action has to be considered by the court, and the court will decide whether to approve it proceeding as a class action. That is currently scheduled for the first week in February. My hope is that uh, it will not be certified as a class action and that all the families who are pursuing individual actions can do so without having to worry about this action. The, uh, we have issued the actions for our clients already, and we have a defense from the airline already, and really the only thing that's obstructing us from proceeding to the next stage is, in fact, the existence of these other proceedings that I've referred to. If that class action, uh, if it is certified or approved as a class action, then we're going to have to address the uh, procedural issues which arise because of that, and that's going to take some time and effort. We will resolve it, uh, but unfortunately, I think uh, that will be a, a poorer result for the families. I think it will result in delay. It will result in additional legal expenses for the family, and it may uh, also result in lower compensation for those families who choose to proceed by way of class action. Rod Windsor, thank you for your expertise and your time here today. You're welcome. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.